On the morning of Sunday, November 15, 1959, shortly after 9 a.m., Clarence Ewalt pulled up in his old Ford to the Clutter residence at River Valley Farm on the outskirts of Holcomb, Kansas. His daughter Nancy had made arrangements to pick up her friend that morning so they could ride to church together to the nearby Methodist congregation, just a few short miles away in Garden City. He waited in his car as Nancy got out and walked up to the house and knocked on the front door. There was stillness that morning on the large farm and pure quiet as no one answered the door after several rings of the doorbell and several rounds of knocking. Nancy decided to go around to the back of the house where the clutter's driveway and garage were located to see if by chance the family had already left for church. She knocked again on the back door by the kitchen. Again, no answer. She glanced over at the garage and noticed through the garage window that both cars owned by the family were still there. Nancy was confused. She quickly ran back around the house to where her father waited in the car. They drove to the nearby residence of another friend, Susan Kidwell. Nancy relayed to the Kidwells that no one answered the door at River Valley Farm after several attempts, and she asked Susan's parents if she could use the Kidwells' phone to try ringing the clutters. She thought maybe they had slept in. She tried them on the phone, and no one picked up the receiver at the clutter house. Clarence, Nancy, and Susan jumped back in the car and quickly drove back to the farm. They rang the doorbell one more time, and no one answered. No one in western Kansas, in fact hardly anyone anywhere outside of very large cities locked their doors in the late 50s. Nancy grabbed the doorknob and turned it as the door crept open. There was nothing but silence as Nancy and Susan walked into the living room and Clarence stood nearby. They walked through to the kitchen and saw a purse laying on the floor, its contents strewn about. It was wide open. They took a step back. They yelled again for their friend and again got nothing but quiet in return. They decided to run up the stairs to the second floor and check things out further and Susan ran into their friend's bedroom and quickly screamed and ran back out. Nancy Ewalt then peeked into the room and saw her friend, Nancy Clutter, still laying in bed. She thought she was just sleeping so she went over to shake her and wake her up. It was then that she noticed the blood all over the wall. She ran back downstairs and Clarence and the girls ran for the phone to call an ambulance and noticed that the phone wires had been cut. Clarence quickly hopped in the car, went to a phone, and called the police. He told them that there is something radically wrong at the Clutter residence. This is the story of Truman Capote and the Clutter family murders. I first heard of Truman Capote in the seventh grade. I was sitting in Mrs. Keddington's English class and we were talking about great 20th century works of American literature. Of course, his book In Cold Blood was mentioned as one of the seminal works of American true crime and was referred to as the first true crime novel. Capote himself called it the first nonfiction novel. Mrs. Keddington wasn't my favorite. I'm not going to lie. But there were a few takeaways from that year studying the English language. She told us that In Cold Blood was about a family of four in a rural Kansas town who were killed in their own home when a home invasion robbery went wrong. I was a bit taken aback to say the least. I didn't know books were written about these types of things. 
I grew up knowing about and at times watching scary movies like A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Shining, and the Friday the 13th films, but a book about real people and a real crime? I had no idea that was even a thing. What must the surviving family members have thought about the whole concept? A book being written about their pain. I didn't read the novel until a few years later when I was in my first semester of college, and a CBS miniseries was released starring Eric Roberts, brother of Julia Roberts, and Anthony Edwards, formerly Goose from Top Gun, who at the time was having success on NBC's weekly drama series, ER. They played killers Perry Edward Smith and Richard Eugene Hickok, respectively. All you Ryan Reynolds fans out there might be interested in knowing that he played Bobby Rupp, the boyfriend of young Nancy Clutter in the film. Sam Neill played the KBI investigator Alvin Dewey in the miniseries, only a few years after he starred in Jurassic Park the then highest grossing motion picture of all time. The miniseries had some disturbing imagery to say the least, especially for a made-for-TV movie. The 90s were known for popular miniseries on network television that at times pushed the envelope. It, starring Tim Curry, was released in 1990. Curry's portrayal of the lead character clown Pennywise traumatized a generation of youths. And there were several Stephen King stories that decade that were adapted into films. In 1997, in fact, The Shining was remade as a TV miniseries in a version shot on location at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado, a hotel that was a major influence for Stephen King as he wrote the original novel. The original Kubrick version from 1980 starring Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall will never be outdone, however, in my opinion. It's a horror masterpiece. For those who are curious, the exteriors of the Overlook Hotel for that film were shot at the real-life Timberline Lodge at Mount Hood in Oregon. Let's get back to In Cold Blood. So I decided to read it. I got through it much quicker than any of my political science and astronomy books that I was reading that semester. Capote described in great detail the look of western Kansas, and you could tell by his words the way the landscape clearly affected him and gave him pause as to how such a crime could have happened in literally the middle of nowhere. He described the town of Holcomb as sitting on the high wheat plains of western Kansas, a lonesome area that other Kansans called out there. I remember at the time hearing that Capote and Harper Lee were good friends and that in fact he had known her most of his life. A few days after the Clutter murders, Capote read a brief story in the New York Times about the brutal murder of a wealthy family in a small Kansas town. He pitched the idea for a story based on the murders to the New Yorker magazine, and the editor quickly agreed. As Capote made plans to head west, he realized he needed an assistant. Harper Lee had just submitted her final manuscript for To Kill a Mockingbird to her publishing house and had ample time on her hands. Lee had long been fascinated by crime cases and had even studied criminal law before dropping out of school and moving to New York. The people of Holcomb were still grieving heavily and in shock from the murders when Lee and Capote made their way to Kansas a few days later. The killer or killers still had not been caught. In the days that followed, Lee proved to be more than an ample research partner for her friend Truman as they tried to make sense of it all. His mannerisms were at times not well accepted among homegrown, born and bred Western Kansans. She had a much more down-to-earth demeanor and could get him in for interviews he wouldn't have otherwise been granted on his own. In 2005, Philip Seymour Hoffman played Truman Capote and Catherine Keener played Harper Lee in Bennett Miller's film titled Capote. Hoffman did an amazing job 
and would win the Oscar for Best Actor. I had seen him in several films prior to that, and I knew that he had shops in a wide range. From School Ties to Twister, The Big Lebowski, to the talented Mr. Ripley and Magnolia, but his performance made my interest in the story and the characters of In Cold Blood spike. The world lost a great talent when Hoffman was found dead after an overdose in his Manhattan apartment on Super Bowl Sunday in 2014. After seeing that film, not only was I interested in the story of In Cold Blood, but also in the way it was written. I read the book again that year and I rented the original 1967 film of the same name starring Robert Blake and Scott Wilson as the killers. I was blown away when I heard that nearly the entire movie was filmed on location in the mid-60s. The scene of the crime in the film was actually filmed in the clutter house in Holcomb where the murders themselves took place. The courtroom scenes were shot in the actual Finney County courtroom in Garden City where the trial took place in early 1960. Quincy Jones wrote the musical score for the film. The score bounces around a bit and at times sounds overly jocular for such a gritty film while at other times it's almost reminiscent of the Psycho score without all of the shrill-sounding, higher-pitched string instruments. In 2006, I resolved that due to descriptions of Holcomb and Garden City, Kansas and In Cold Blood, which had become one of my favorite novels, I knew that I had to visit Kansas for myself. I was dating someone in the summer of 06. I won't mention her name here. We dated for a few months and actually watched the films Capote and In Cold Blood together. She shared my interest in true crime stories and good films. We even talked about going on a road trip to Kansas together, but as relationships often do, that one ended at the end of the summer. My friends were planning on a singles cruise in October of that year, and I had planned to go with them, so I asked for a few days off work. As the time for the cruise drew nearer, I could tell I wasn't going to be able to get enough time off, so my friends went on the cruise without me. I still had at least two days off, however, Thursday and Friday, October 12th and 13th of 2006. I resolved to drive to Kansas on my own to check out the locations I'd been reading about in Capote's book for so long. Holcomb is about a four hour drive from Denver and Denver is about eight and a half hours from Salt Lake City, Utah. I headed east on I-70 and I knew that I would stay the night in the Denver area before heading to Kansas the following day. I was in my black 2004 Mazda 6. She was sleek and cornered on a dime. I remember listening to Johnny Cash on the drive. I stayed the night at a Super 8 in Arvada. I remember laying in bed and thinking to myself, should I really be trying to see for myself the place where essentially a mass murder happened? I had this feeling of dread come over me and sadness for the Clutter family and what they'd suffered. And I thought about the evil of the killers Smith and Hickok, but that they were people too. So essentially that night in Holcomb in 1959 ended up taking the lives of six people but I knew that I'd already come this far, so I had to see it through. In the introductory episode, I talked about Stand By Me and the four boys going to see Ray Brower's body. I thought about the scene where they discover Brower lying under some branches near the railroad tracks and Dreyfus's narration. The train had knocked Ray Brower out of his kids, just like it knocked the life out of his body. The kid wasn't sick. The kid wasn't sleeping. The kid was dead. I woke up the next morning, Friday, October 13th, 2006, and hopped in my Mazda and headed for Southwest Kansas. I probably shouldn't admit this out loud, but I remember singing along to Donny Osmond's version of Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. As it turns out, Eastern Colorado is really flat. 
as is Western Kansas, so I had to keep my energy level up. I drank a few Red Bulls, probably a few too many. In the early afternoon, I had crossed the border into Kansas and was only a few miles away from the town of Holcomb. I looked up and saw the town water tower looming above. I had printed directions to the clutter farm from MapQuest, as one generally did in those days, and I knew I was getting closer. As I turned right off the main street to head to the farm, I saw a bulletin board with pamphlets on it indicating that the In Cold Blood house was up for auction. I had read online that an older couple by the names of Leonard and Donna Mater had owned the house and farm for decades and that they were essentially the first ones to live there since the clutters. I stopped and grabbed a pamphlet. I still have it to this day. I had read online that the Maters had placed a no trespassing sign at the end of the lane that led to the house. I saw a phone number on the pamphlet, but didn't call it yet. I decided to tour the rest of Holcomb and Garden City and then come back by River Valley Farm and drive down that lane that led to the former clutter house last thing before I drove back to Denver. I drove to the Finney County Courthouse in Garden City where the trial of Smith and Hickok took place. I drove past the Methodist Church where Nancy Ewalt, her dad Clarence, and her best friend Nancy Clutter were supposed to attend that morning in November in 1959 if only things had turned out differently. I drove north up the hill and ended at Valley View Cemetery, where I knew the four murdered clutters had found their final resting place. I weaved around the cemetery in my car, studying the headstones, as I often do. I passed the headstone of Alvin Dewey, the investigator of the Kansas Bureau of Investigation who was assigned to the clutter case, and attended that same Methodist congregation that the clutters did, and was a good friend of Herb Clutters. I stopped and paid my respects. I continued on, and about 50 yards to the west of Alvin Dewey's grave were the graves of the four murdered clutters, Nancy, Bonnie, Herbert, and Kenyon. I got out and took a picture standing next to their graves. I couldn't smile in that moment. I could only feel the quiet of the cemetery. I left the cemetery, and as I resolved to do, I drove back to River Valley Farm, some eight miles away, and I got to the no trespassing sign and I continued on. I stopped on the dusty lane and got out of my car. I could see the clutter house in the distance. I took a photograph that day that I have hanging on my wall. I titled it Last Chance. I was standing on the dusty lane lined with Chinese elms that leads to the former residence of the Herb Clutter family. Once a bustling homestead called River Valley Farm at the end of Oak Avenue on the outskirts of Holcomb, Kansas. I knew as I stood there that day that nearly 50 years before, a car had pulled down that lane slightly after midnight. The driver had turned off the headlights in order to encroach upon the house without being seen. Driving was Richard Eugene Hickok, and in the passenger seat was Perry Edward Smith. Dick Hickok had been told by a former cellmate that Herb Clutter kept at least $10,000 in cash at all times in that house in a safe and they were going to do whatever it took to get that money for themselves. The events that would occur as they met their destination that night would give Truman Capote the inspiration to write the novel In Cold Blood, a masterpiece of American true crime. For a brief moment, Hickok and Smith debated turning that car around, but they saw their plan through and ruined their lives 
and the lives of the four people that were sleeping in that house, as well as the lives of dozens of others. It was a chain reaction. I thought of Clarence Ewalt driving down that same lane the next morning, his daughter in the passenger seat with nothing but pure intentions to pick up a friend for church, a friend Nancy Ewalt would never see alive again. In the next episode, we will discuss what happened in that house that night in mid-November 1959, as well as the ensuing manhunt and how it affected the family, the killers, and Capote himself who said these words about the experience of writing in cold blood. It scraped me right down to the marrow of my bones. It nearly killed me. I think in a way, it did kill me. I'm Chad Mortensen. Join me next time for Saints and Sinners, True Crime and the History of the West. Mm -hmm.